Telling you, bro. What's been happening, bro? Uh, not too much. Still hitting more Peggyos. Hi, my name is Shane Terrio, and you are listening to The Riff Raff. Music, stories, and insights from the front line. Hello, and greetings from sunny Las Vegas, Nevada, where I have a day off. I'm on tour, summer tour, with uh, Daryl Hall and John Oates. Am I out gambling, doing fun Las Vegas type things? No. I'm in my hotel room, finishing this episode of Riff Raff to deliver to you. I've been getting a lot of comments. Keep it up, keep it up. We need more and more. Well, they take a lot of a lot of time, but you know it's a labor of love. So uh, I'm glad you guys even listen. Thank you for your comments. If you haven't commented or give me a rating on iTunes, on iTunes, that's the only thing I ask. It's it's definitely gaining in popularity so keeps me making more okay enough of that my guest today is bassist mark egan he's a world-renowned bassist composer band leader he's recorded and performed with many of the greats in the world of music he was an original member of the pat metheny group the first incarnation of that band which produced such classic records as american garage Mark's also recorded many of his own projects, his own solo records, with perhaps the best known of these being the band Elements, with drummer Danny Gottlieb, with whom to this day still shares a close musical relationship, as you'll hear about. In this interview, we talk about early days at University of Miami, transitioning from trumpet to bass, studying and playing with Jaco Pastoris, getting his first fretless from Jaco, pretty cool story. Early gigs in New York, Pat Metheny, Dave Sanborn, Sting, Gil Evans, Duran Duran, list goes on. And get this, Bill Cosby. Yes, he actually did a jazz record, and it's actually really great. I had the pleasure of working with Mark a few months ago, recording for a few days on a, for an upcoming project, and I can assure you he is definitely one of the greats, cool guy. He's worked with so many legendary guitar players as well. Pat Bethany, Pat Martino, Schofield, John Abercrombie, McLaughlin, you name it. So on this beautiful day, I took the train up from Manhattan to Mark's studio in Connecticut and missed the connection. Oops. Um, But Mark was gracious enough to pick me up at a different train station and go out of his way. And we make it to his beautiful home and studio and we are off and running So step in, we're just sort of improvising on a little chordal progression, playing music, having fun, and it's my pleasure to bring you this episode of Riff Raff, thanks for tuning in, hope you enjoy it.
<laughs> seemed like a good place to stop. Yeah. Cool. Yeah, Mark. I am sitting here in uh, Mark Egan's beautiful studio in Connecticut. Beautiful day. Yeah. And thanks for uh, doing this, accommodating me. Oh, thanks. Great that you could picking stop me up by. at the train station. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Crazy trains. Yeah, I'm glad you could come by. Yeah. Finally made it happen. It takes sometimes it takes a little while to get things done. But uh, I know, yeah. I know. You've been traveling. I've been traveling. And yeah, that's what happens. Well, tell the listeners. Um, I first met Mark a couple of. I guess it's about two years ago now. We played together with a mutual friend, Steve Shapiro. Yes, great vibes player. We played up in, here in Connecticut. Yes, that was fun. And of course, I knew who you were and history and everything. And it was you know a thrill to get to play. Even as strange as a gig as that was, I remember. But <laughs> it was trio. It was vibes, bass, yeah. and guitar. Yeah, and kind yeah. of a loud crowd. But a we loud crowd. We slugged through it. We had fun. Yeah. <laughs> that was good. And then we did a couple other dates with Steve. At least one. Oh no, two others. Yeah, one recently at in, uh, at uh, Richard Bonus Club. Yes, Joel Rosenblatt Club Steve Bonafide. Yep, it was a lot of fun. Yeah, that was. Uh, it was interesting because when we played at Club Bonafide. I had been working on this project with uh, Arjun Brugman, who's a tabla player. He plays with Krishna Das, and we play together with Krishna Das. And um, I had been wanting to add acoustic to the project because so far, up to that point, it had been just tablas and bass. Mm-hmm. And then when we played that night, I said, Shane, you play acoustic, don't you? And then he said, yeah. And then a day or two later, you were at yeah, the studio well, here. Yeah, that was fun. That was a lot of fun. Yeah, really, really nice combination. Yeah, a lot of fun. Well, I mean, I don't, let's see where to start. I mean, you have such a huge uh, discography and history and a lot of things you've done. I mean, I don't want to, like, get into every little bit of history, but... Yep. But, you know, I, I was... Uh, let's just start with... You're from Massachusetts originally, right? Yes, I'm from Brockton, Massachusetts. It's on the you, south shore of Boston. It's about 35 okay. miles from Boston. And then you went to Berkeley, right? I went to the University of Miami. Oh, you didn't go to... I knew you went. I, was, I thought you maybe went to Berkeley for a minute and then... But I know you definitely went to University of Miami because yeah. Will Lee and I were just... He just brought up your name when I interviewed him. He was talking about how Jocko was the teacher and you were there and... Yes. You know. And Will, when I met Will at the University of Miami, his father was the dean of music. Right. Dean Lee. Dean Lee. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like a comic book. Yeah. Stan Lee. Um, Let me move this. Suit. Will was playing French horn and bass, but he was, when I knew him, he was a French horn player. And then we were in a small group as part of the school, and he played bass, and I was playing trumpet. So I originally went wow. to Miami as a trumpet player. Yeah, because you, uh, you were a really accomplished trumpet player. I don't know if a lot of people know that. Like you were doing gigs and stuff on yeah, trumpet. Yeah, I was doing gigs since I was 15 around the Boston area. At that time, I played in a lot of rhythm and blues bands, playing the music of Wilson Pickett and James Brown, you know, with horn section, mm-hmm. twirling horns. And so, you know, that was my roots around the South Boston area, which was kind of a rough scene. But I loved it because I was 15 and... You know, I would tell my parents that I was going to uh, to play at a Knights of Columbus Hall or something. <laughs> <laughs> and then, if they only knew, yeah. they trusted me. And, and I have to say that they gave me so much support in my life for to do whatever I wanted to do. But, you know, there's certain things you just couldn't tell your parents because they, yeah. they, they would have said no. So, but that's what uh, my early years was playing trumpet, actually, uh, in, not only in R&B bands, but I played in jazz bands around Brockton, youth stage band, and we played at Montreal at uh, the World's Fair, played with that band, and I was on the Ted Mack Amateur Hour, wow. which was a show at, at the Ed Sullivan Theater. Um, so, you know, it's, it's funny. Yeah, I remember going backstage there when we first got there. I was 16, and... We were in the same dressing room that the Beatles were in, and I thought that was such a big thing. Well, it was, yeah. you know. Yeah, sure. At what point did you switch to bass? Teens or, or late I was teens? in my teens. Actually, around the same time when I was about fifteen, sixteen, I was also interested in playing bass um, because I just heard I might, for some reason my ears gravitated towards bass because on the radio at the time that was in the late 60s mid to late 60s 
music of Motown, Hendrix, Cream, all the great, you know, rock and soul and funk music was happening. And the bass was pretty predominant in a lot of those mixes. And for some reason, even though I was a trumpet player, which is more of the higher spectrum of things, I was tuning into the bass and I actually went out and bought a bass, a cheap Delray bass. And I got a Delray. Ba- I've never even heard of a Delray. Yeah, it's a, it was a Japanese bass, very of inexpensive. Course, with that name. Cost yeah, forty dollars. I remember I paid for it, and then I got a Supro bass amp, one of the originals, and I wish I still had it. Now, where did Ira Sullivan come in? Was that? There was that. Were you still in school when you started playing with Ira Sullivan? Or? Yes, and Ira Sullivan lived in Florida. He originally from Chicago. And when I first went to Miami, he was playing with a group at a club called The Rancher, which was up in North Miami. We used to go to see him at late night. And uh, it was a great... Joe DiOrio was playing with him. Mm -hmm. Steve Bagby, an amazing drummer. Um, Tony Castellano. Billy Fry was the bass player. And just some of the most creative music, jazz music. And, you know, Ira still plays that. Um, I didn't start to play with him, Ira, till maybe about three years when I was there, and I was playing upright. I played in a group playing upright with Ira. Is that the group that um, I don't? I'm not going to keep asking about Jocko the whole time, but I think it's relevant. You, weren't weren't you guys playing together in that band? Both playing bass? Well, that was a little bit later, but I remember when I was playing with Ira, we were playing more acoustic jazz standards. And Ira also had an electric band with Jocko. And that was with Jocko and Bobby Conamo. Mm-hmm. And Joe Diorio was in that band, I think. I remember Ira would come in and say, you got to hear this bass player, Jocko. And he showed mm-hmm. me one of his tunes. And I said, wow, it sounds great. And I was in Miami and Jocko was up in Fort Lauderdale. So it was a little bit of space so that I, I was more really centralized right in Miami. But uh, finally, I did hear him because that group played at a place up in Fort Lauderdale, and I, that changed me and a lot of people mm-hmm. <laughs> as far as bass playing. But then, in addition to that, there was a band called Baker's Dozen, which was a big band that was players uh, from the era, studio players, and there were th- actually three bass players. We didn't all play at the same time, although two of us did. Uh, it was Don Mast was the acoustic player, and then they brought me in to play electric on some of the parts because a great uh, composer, Ron Miller, wrote music that required electric bass. So we'd play two basses with that. Since Ira Sullivan was playing with Jocko in another band, he brought Jocko in with some of Jocko's arrangements for big band that then Baker's Dozen played, and Jocko played them. So Oh, he sort of tailored the, the arrangement for the Right, the it was Baker's things Dozen. that he had written for Wayne Cochran and the C.C. Oh, Riders, okay. and he sort of tailored the horn section for that. Wow. So that was my first introduction to Jocko. And wow. Amazing. We actually, it's kind of a funny story, but we got kicked out of a rehearsal. <laughs> Did I tell you this? No. No. We rehearsed at uh, Dade College, and Jocko and I were in the room, and the other bass player was playing acoustic bass, and Jocko and I were in the back of the auditorium, and Jocko said, Man, you know, Jocko is very intense. Uh-huh. Some, people, some people may have known him or seen the recent movie that was out. But he would say, man, you got to hear this. And he had a tape. He brought a reel-to-reel, a Sony four-track machine. You know how heavy those That's are? That's commitment They're right there. big. It's a huge, like a little mini refrigerator. He brought that, and we had two big sets of headphones. And we were in the back, and I was listening to it, and it was blowing my mind. It sounded like nothing I'd ever heard. It sounded like John McLaughlin playing bass or something. Mm. That's how I, it, it was beyond me. And... You know how it is sometimes when you have headphones on, you don't hear yourself, so you talk loud. Right, right, yeah, scream. We were talking really loud. <laughs> and the director of the band, Vince uh, Lawrence, Vince DiMaggio, Vince DiMaggio, kicked us out of the auditorium. You guys, get out of here. <laughs> they kicked us out. I said, oh, man, whatever. But anyway, that was the first time I saw Jocko, and we did play in that band, you know, simultaneously, but not together was any of that stuff has it ever been recorded was anything recorded is there anything out or you know they would just be bootleg tapes and i don't have any of it but there are some recordings of that band i don't i think there's some with jocko i'm not sure yeah 
Yeah, it would just it'd be great to hear you and Jocko play together on some Yeah, we, we played together with the Gil Evans with Orchestra Gil Evans, later yeah. on in New York. And we yeah. did some tours in uh, Europe and Japan. Or was it just Japan? I think it was Japan. I remember I read that Bill Milkowski book, and I, I think it was you. You're in the book a lot, and I remember you were talking about what a strong force he was—not just like bass playing, but his whole attitude. You know, he could just make you think you could walk through a wall or something. Yes. I believe that was your quote. That was my quote. Yeah. yeah. Uh, he just—if you—I did take some lessons with him uh, one summer when he was teaching adjunctly at the University of Miami, just a summer class. He had took private students. And I would spend an hour with him, and I would be supercharged for days because he was so inspiring, and he had so much together and was so energized um, that it really rubbed off. And it's like that sometimes when you're around people that are really inspiring. You know, you just you, you carry that, that vibe, that feeling from them, and I really felt it so strongly from him. So it was really great. And, you know, that was Jocko the early years before um, his big fame, Mm-hmm. And when he started to have him get imbalanced uh, problems or di- bipolar things happening, yeah, with drugs and alcohol. So yeah. I knew Jocko early on. He was completely straight and bragged about it, and would stand out in front of this club that they would play at in Florida with Ira in the breaks, and he'd come out and he'd say, "Man, I don't do anything. I don't need to take anything. You know, I'm I'm high on life. This is you know, I'm just here for the music, and you know." It, he, he had such a strong sense of self, and he would say, no one's playing what I'm doing. No one's doing this, you know. And it's just, you know, it used to, it comes off as ego, heavy, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. heavy self-ego thing, but it was okay because it he was He could true. back it up, yeah. He backed it up big time. of them playing where he played Freedom Jazz Dance and uh, some other songs. And Bobby was playing drums. Bobby was yeah. playing. Yeah, I, I got to work with Bobby a couple times. Oh, yeah? He came down to New Orleans and recorded some songs, and he's, he's a, a great guy. Great guy, great yeah. drummer. He told me some funny stories. I know we don't really have to go in a linear fashion here, you know, um, timeline-wise. When you left Miami, what brought you to New York? You just said, this is where the scene's happening, I'm coming to New York kind of thing. Or did you have a gig in place? I actually just... had a gig it was with Phyllis Hyman, singer, who we've been playing in Miami and had a very successful band with Hiram Bullock and uh, Clifford Carter, a great drummer, Bill Bowker, who was a great friend, and we played together a lot in Florida. And, um, but that was the band, and we, we came up for a two-week engagement to play at a place on the Upper West Side called Russ Brown's on 96th Street in Columbus right there. And the gig kept getting extended. Uh, we were there for a month or six weeks, and I, I just decided I wanted to move to New York then because I'm just going to stay here. This is, I didn't have much other happening, but I knew that we would be playing together. Yeah. And you just thought the pastures are green or they're Miami. Yeah, and then I had... Um, because... Around that time, there was a club called McKell's, which was down the street from there. And during our breaks, playing with Phyllis, we'd run down and go to McKell's, and Stuff would be playing. Yeah. You know, with Steve Gadd and... Cornell Dupree and yeah, Richard T. Richard T. T. And, and Gordon Edwards. And it was... that We said, whoa, this is great. But we had one weekend off from that club. I drove straight through to Miami, 24 hours, whatever, took a nap on the way. And then... 
I put all my possessions out on the street. I didn't have much, but <laughs> my bedding, I just couldn't take it with me. You know, silverware, it was all... Yeah, replaceable stuff. Yeah, it was just junk stuff. But I just put it on the street and then drove back. <laughs> down and back. And then we played that night. Man, that is freedom and determination right there. Just, and I, you know, I just... Cause and I wanted, youth, you know, just... Yeah, but, and then as it turns out, uh, after about a month, Cliff, uh, the keyboard player Clifford and I and the drummer got a call to go out with the Pointer Sisters. So that was a really big decision because we had been with Phyllis and we were very loyal to her and her band. Yeah. And here we, we came to New York and we left after about seven weeks to go with the Pointer Sisters and we left Phyllis and it was, I tell you, that was one of the most gut-wrenching, heartbreaking decisions I had to make because it really hurt her. She was crushed. She was crushed. She didn't have a band. She had to get a band together. But I just... I felt like I wanted to branch out and it was a good opportunity to get on a national act. Yeah. You know, so we went out and we did a tour with them, but we only did one tour. It didn't work out. And so we came back, Clifford and Billy and I came back to New York and I was back in New York without any work or Uh anything. And I had saved a little bit of money from Florida, but I was now in New York and I was saying to myself, okay, now what? And I just said, well, just went around and listened to people and tried to sit in and, I listened a lot. I went places and just listened. I just wanted to see what was going on. Gradually met a lot of friends and started working. And um, I also said, okay, I don't have anything happening work-wise, but I want to study. So I studied with Dave Holland. Wow. Because he was always one of my favorites. Yeah. I was playing upright and electric at the same time. And um, so I started taking lessons with Dave, which was to be studying with someone like him was really incredible Mm -hmm. so I did that and then one thing led to another and uh, I started playing with David Sanborn but before that I played with Diodato you know it's funny how gigs happen and things happen the bass player Jeff Berlin had gotten a call from Diodato who wrote uh, 2001 Space Odyssey wow people know that (laughs) yeah that funky version of it that was on CTI Records Jeff couldn't do this tour that he was doing of Mexico so he called me, Jeff called me, he said, give Diodato a call and tell him you're available. And I said, oh, I can't, he doesn't know me, all these excuses. And I said, well, it can't hurt, let me try. So I called him up and he said, well, who you been playing with? I said, well, I just got off the road with the Pointer Sisters. He goes, great, hired, you want to go to Mexico for a month? You know, I didn't even ask how much it paid. I didn't care. Yeah. I was just, just... so happy to be playing. did that and um things like that kept happening yeah snowballed from there yep i'm fascinated with 70s and 80s new york there obviously there's like way more going on but it's weird the way gigs can sort of come out of some remote random connection and and sometimes a year or two later yes you know yeah you found that yourself i have but it's interesting to hear that it's always been like that Yeah, it just sort of pieces together and one thing leads to another but one thing is you have to have have it together yeah when you gotta play you know it's you gotta be so that's why you know all the hard work in miami and playing with all those different people i had had a lot of experience and i also when i was in miami something that gave me a lot of experience i there was a ton of work on miami beach at all the hotels they had big bands, medium-sized bands, and every week a different act would come in and you'd play the act for the whole week. And so you'd have one rehearsal the day, first day, day of the gig. And so I, that's how I really cut my teeth on reading and, hmm. you know, urgent reading. Like, you got to make the yeah. gig tonight. Plus you were a trumpet player and horn players are right. above and beyond better readers usually than right. guitar and players or bass So I sort of applied the trumpet to the bass, yeah. so I was doing those gigs on bass Miami Beach and so you know there would be um, Bobby Rydell would come for a week and then Frankie Avalon 
and then Bobby Vinton, all these South Philly mm-hmm. guys, and the Red Fox comedian. We'd play mm-hmm. him on, and we had a big band to play him on. And I actually went on the road with Red Fox. I toured with Red Fox, which was really a lot of fun. Man, I met him when I was a kid in the French Quarter on Bourbon Street. I was probably 14, 15. I wasn't supposed to be out there. I was with my cousin. And I saw him in a gift shop with like his bodyguard or somebody. It was like midnight. And I used to watch Sanford Son every every day after school. And I went up to him and asked him to sign a dollar. It's all I had. Oh, jeez. <laughs> and he rejected me. He said, I love, I love money too much. I can't sign that. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. That's, That's my Red Fox door. You know, I was looking at like your discography. You know, last time I was over here, we were talking about Duran Duran. I want to hear about all that stuff too. But I looked up your discography last night. Some of it I I knew, but a lot of it I was surprised. I was like, speaking of unrelated gigs, you played on a Bill Cosby record. Yes. <laughs> what it, Bill what Cos- is that? <laughs> Bill Cosby uh, was... Just to sidestep for a second. You yeah, know. he wanted... He was always doing different projects, but he wanted to go in the studio and just experiment. And he would go in and he'd get people together. So he got... One of the sessions was John Schofield, Jack DeJanette, Harold Mayburn, myself, and Harold Vick. Harold Vick. Wow. And we were going to... Um, a studio over in Queens where he it was the same place where he shot his show the Cosby show okay uh, Kaufman Studios really nice studio it was in the basement part of it and um, he would come up with these little themes and then we would improvise on them and he would have me play sometimes eight string fretless through a wah-wah pedal there's a record of it I'm gonna I, it will be on this podcast I'm in there I'll playing that with Jack DeJanette and you know playing a blues and it's just it was great we did we played on uh, it was a music show on vh1 i think one of those video shows mm-hmm. we did a live show with sonny Chirac on guitar yeah wow that's out man. yeah we did a, a lot of sessions Chirac. there's a lot of tapes a lot of hours and hours and hours because we just rolled the tape and he Interesting. might he'd play a little percussion but he was mostly in the room like pointing to people to play and you know, give him a little direction, you know, okay, come on, more, 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 you know, and then he had people lay out, and so he was more like conducting it. I always heard he was a, a big jazz lover and aficionado of, you know, he the is. arts and things. And he is. I was sorry to hear what's going on with him. Yeah. Yeah, well. But. I thought maybe it was a little bit of BS, but after 60 women come out, you know, it's kind of like. You know, right. They, I think one of them the other day I watched something on, on the news and they disproved her whole account of what happened and it's like, great, only 59 more to go. <laughs> I know. with so many great guitar players like you, you just mentioned John Schofield you meant I know you work with Hiram and Gil Evans Orchestra yeah you work with John Abercrombie because I you know you gave me his record your record you did on your label and I think you said he played through these amps here and, and uh, who else I've been so blessed to play Steve with Steve Kahn Steve Kahn and of course Pat Metheny which we should talk about definitely yeah sure Pat and Pat Martino and John McLaughlin the two Pats and yeah McLaughlin right I forgot about McLaughlin I recorded with uh, on a track with Bill Evans did a couple of songs wow. with John that yeah. was really peak highlight of my career you know to play with him and you know it's funny I hear it's interesting you say Pat before we get into Matheny that I the first time I met you was not through Steve Shapiro it was in Vancouver that's in right, the hotel. Pat Martino. Pat Martino at the Jazz Vancouver yes, Jazz Fest I right? worked up the nerve to approach Pat Martino Awesome. Because he's a pretty daunting-looking cat, man. He is. And he had the sunglasses on, and I worked up the nerve to go up to him. And he sort of brushed me off for 10 seconds until I mentioned, yeah, I, I know your star, you know, the diminished chord thing. And, and his I eyes read up. up on it, and all of a sudden it was like, oh, what's your name? Nice. I, I didn't tell him I don't know how to use any of it, but I understand it. Nice. You know? 
and then we took a photo and you were in the you were in the photo and years later i found it and, that's classic yeah but um i remember that i read somewhere where when you were you were playing when the pat Metheny thing came together and that first amazing band that you guys played like 200 dates two 300 dates everywhere 300 Just, days a year for four years wow that's, and that's before you did the first record uh, well, it was from the beginning of the band till when I left the band. That was about how many dates we did. But we, the first year before the record was out, we did probably that, not quite that many, but almost. But, you know, Pat, um, just to back up a little yeah. I, Pat, I was at the University of Miami with Pat as mm -hmm. well as Danny Gottlieb. Mm -hmm. So we were buddies from there. And then Pat moved to Berkeley in Boston to teach with, and play with Gary Burton. I still stayed in uh, Miami, but then I came up in 76, and that was in 76 when I, later on, right after, um, right after Diodato, David Sanborn asked me to join his band, mm. because Hiram was in the band, so Hiram got me on that band, and uh, that was another big decision, because I was playing with Diodato, but then I said, well, I, you know, I've got to play with the David Sanborn band, so bigger decision was when I was with David Sanborn, and we had just done a record for Warner Brothers, and he recorded one of my songs called Heart Lake, one of the first compositions that mm. I got recorded. Wow, I didn't realize that. Uh, yeah, Dave asked, do you have any songs? And I said, yeah. to see if I wanted to join the band with Lyle Mays and Danny and him. So, and Pat was unknown at the time. He was known in, because he had done Bright Side's Life, mm -hmm. his first record. He was known in the guitar world, but it wasn't, you know, popular like the way it became. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I went from David Sanborn's group, who was very popular, we were playing really big venues, to going on the road in a van and carrying our own equipment, setting up and going on. But what really sold me or made me want to do it was I went up to, uh, he, Pat said, well, just come up and we'll rehearse one time. So I took a train up to Boston. I practiced all the way. I like trains for that, you know, if you can <laughs> yeah, get the good. room. Yeah, if they, show, if they show up on time. Yeah. <laughs> if you don't and miss I, them. We played like I did. A, a couple of things uh, from Watercolors and Bright Size Life. And I said, I got to do this. You just this clicked. is why yeah. I played. I want to play creative music. Not that David Sanborn band wasn't creative, but it was this was really original stuff. And I just said, you know, I really had a strong feeling about it. So. And you made two. I don't know offhand out of my head, but I mean, what Pat Metheny Group was the first one. Then American Garage is like classic. Yeah, and um, we did the soundtrack to a. Uh, science movie, I forget what it was called. Search for S Solutions, that was mm. the soundtrack we did as well. The balloons don't respond instantly. You have to see 30 seconds ahead, anticipate what you should do. Your decision had better be right. One balloon doesn't go faster than another. The same wind is available to everyone. Once you're up, set your course. You have to read both the earth and the sky. Yesterday, the pond had squirrels on top of them. But yeah, it was a great experience and a real growing period for me and for the group and everybody establishing yeah. a group sound. And, you know, the band had a real identifiable sound and we worked really hard on uh, dynamics and flowing together as a group, you know. Yeah, those early records are so good. I mean, I... I love Pat Metheny. I don't know any. I don't know any guitar players that don't do not love Pat Metheny. But I got to say, man, the Secret Weapons. You know, you and Lyle Mays in that band. That was a sound, man. It was a sound, and, and you know the sound of Danny and uh, Danny plays with so much empathy. You know, and so much. He's such a sensitive player, but has, also has a lot of force. And I hope we can play sometime with Danny. That would be I would great. love to. I mean, you guys are like. We're so brothers. Used him. I mean, you're basically a team. Yeah. We're real brothers. Pretty much anything you'd... So we really got to, to grow as a rhythm section, you know, for those four years, playing all the time. 
playing so much. And it was great. the first record the white sort of called the white album which is the pat metheny group album um we did it in two days or some only a few days mm -hmm. it was mostly first and second takes mm -hmm. no overdubs except for if pat doubled something like with his uh, 12 string or his uh odd tune guitar i think and lyle uh played the auto harp on it some things but otherwise it was live and that's the upside of doing 300 dates a year is you can go in the studio and... And just... Just blow it We played it the set down. Yeah. Basically, we played the set down. And it was recorded by Manfred Eicher from ECM Records and uh, Jan Eric uh, was the engineer. Did you do it in Oslo in that we famous it, studio? Yep. We did it in Oslo at Tone Studio. I think that's the name of it. So that console has got to be a big part of that sound, huh? Yes, and you know, I don't. I think it was a Neve console. I'm pretty sure. And on my bass, I had a, an Ampeg B15 with an RE20 mic on it. I was playing a Fender 58 Precision that um, used to belong to Pat, and then he gave it to Jocko, and Jocko gave it to me. So yeah, it's sort and of a Jocko's, strange lineage. Uh, tech guy had made it into a fretless. That's how I really started getting into fretless. Was that, at that point because. And I remember we were playing at a Paul's Mall up in Boston, which is a jazz club that used to be in Boston. And the bass was ready, and Jocko sent it. At that time, I was on Eastern Airlines. It showed up at the airport, so I had to drive that afternoon to the airport. And I wish I still had the note that Jocko put a note. It was in an anvil case, and I played the bass that night. But he goes, I think he said something like, here you go, Eags. You know, <laughs> it's playing really great, you know, so. And then I just played it that night and that was it. I, didn't, I never played fretted in that band again. It was always fretless. It's a very expressive sound. Maybe you being a trumpet player kind of picked up on that some kind of way innately or something. You I know? think so. Yeah, I had the can... melodic head, yeah. you know, from, from playing. Because I used to play jazz on trumpet. I mean, that was... I was aspiring to, and listening to people like Miles Davis and Kenny Dorham and Clifford Brown and Freddie Hubbard. That's where my head was, you know. Was, well, that's, you know, like just to get into more your uh, your bass playing now. I mean, you're a very melodic player. The stuff I've heard you do and a few times we played together, I always pick up on that. And, I, and now it sort of makes sense. The trumpet is probably where that melodic, foundation came from the way you shape lines or the way you hear things maybe right i think definitely i mean you can definitely funk and play all that you know foundational type bass stuff but i i hear the melodic the shape of the contour the lines and yeah things, i think you know? the trumpet is still in me you know it's still in my spirit it's just when you do something in your youth you know it never really leaves you it's yeah. a party to you know it's just and it's just a way of thinking and from playing in all those jazz bands and practicing for you know you have to, with trumpet you have to put a lot of time in, with any instrument I think yeah a lot of to that get the, in the intonation and, and things to the embouchure but but also fretless is a pretty hard axe to get the intonation dead on too i mean that's a lot of uh it is it is and it's some i use uh as you can see here i got my base i inlays for fret markers and i mm -hmm. rely on those all the time mm -hmm. look at them yeah, that's a beautiful... You've been playing those padulas for a long time, right? Long time, since uh, 1981. And I've been working with him since then, and this is the latest version, which is a actually a signature bass that he did for me. It has little different things. It's more of a cutaway, which means my left hand on the strings goes... I can get, go to the, tw the 24th fret. It has a little bit of different electronics on it, and the neck is a little narrower from front to back. So I don't have big hands, so that really helps. You know, another thing from playing trumpet, and I was trying to be an improviser, learning improvisation was the theory of improvising. And there was a transitional period when I was at Miami where it's a funny story, but I had this, I've shared this house in Miami uh, with a trumpet player and a saxophone player, and 
I had my bass amp there and the trumpet player had a drum set of drums and we used to just jam, mm -hmm. just play around. One day this guy who, another saxophone player came to visit, his name is Jet Nero, great name. <laughs> Jet he's a, Nero. He's a saxophone player. I'm not sure if he's still alive, but he was in Miami and he's one of those guys, he wasn't, didn't go to the university, but he, he was always playing gigs. He was always playing in clubs and he always had a band and he just always worked. He came over and he saw that there was a bass amp there and he needed a bass player the next night. So he called and said, who plays bass there? And my friend Randy said, Mark does. And so he, I talked to Jet. He goes, you want to play tomorrow night? And I had never played a gig on bass, really. And I said, okay. I had balls. Yeah. You yeah, know, I fearless, just said, man. what? And so I got all the lead sheets and I learned it and I played one finger bass <laughs> on the left hand and the right hand. Some people make a lot of money still playing one finger bass. You know? Yeah, well, it was like two finger bass. And <laughs> so I did the gig. I was kind of petrified, but I locked in and we had a good time. And he, he said, do you want to join the group? Wow. And I thought I was an <laughs> imposter. I said to myself, wow. I said, yeah, sure. <laughs> I was really a trumpet player. I was, you know, it was more of a secondary instrument for me. And then I started playing. I started transferring a lot of the information that I had learned on trumpet and the, the theory and harmony to the bass. And I realized, wow, I got a lot to catch up on. That's how I changed the transition. My life. So I, mean, I think you made the right decision. Yeah, I just, I was, I loved it. I was just, I always, I just wanted to play all the time and I played all the time. go to these loft sessions in, around New York and Brooklyn area and people would want to play, you know, let's play this tune or that tune. And I always wanted to just, you know, find out what the free music or what the music that we could create in the moment was, mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. So I did a lot of that in Florida, a lot of experimental music. I love that stuff, man. Yeah. Maybe we should play something now. Mm. Yeah, why don't you just start something, Mark, and okay. I'll <laughs> see if something comes up. come together I know that was post uh, Athene and stuff but that was your group yeah with Danny, Danny. co-led by Danny and I and yeah you had a lot of other people involved I mean you did like 15 records or something. a lot like of that. records yeah um you know we had Danny and I have a special rapport and we had talked about uh doing a project after we after I left the Matheny group and I had been recording starting to do a lot of studio work in the early 80s 1980. 81, and I played at this studio called Howard Schwartz Recording, which was above uh, Grand Central Station in the, that Brill building, not the Brill building, the Gray Bar building. They had a studio above Grand Central? Three story, really? three floors, yeah. A lot of commercials were done there, but he had a great uh, Studio West was one of the rooms there, and it had a, at that time it was an MCI board, and it just sounded good, the room sounded great, but... I had been working there, and I met the engineer, Richard Brownstein, who later has become a great friend and engineered most of my records. 
And uh, he said, you know, if you guys ever want to do anything on the weekends, you know, mm-hmm. I can get in. Howard will get me in. We could do. So I talked to Dan. I said, we've got to do something. And then we came up with some concepts and ideas. And I had written a few songs, more songs. So we wrote for that. And we also had special guest Clifford Carter playing keyboards. Some of you might know Clifford from, played with James Taylor, Brian Ferry. Yeah. Yeah. He's just, Clifford's a incredible musician and uh, at that time we had been made new friends with Bill Evans who was playing with Miles Davis at the time so we had Bill play on it so that was the quartet for that first record that was on Island Records You know, the concept for Elements was we wanted to create a backdrop that would feature Danny and I, our our rapport as drums and bass, but also to play some creative music inspired by like Weather Report and and sort of that direction. So it was, it wasn't really fusion fusion, but I guess nowadays people would probably call it more fusion. It was instrumental, contemporary jazz. I think in Japan, you guys were really known right they would use a lot of your music on yes TV and things exactly and we did a live recording in japan and that's how i started my record label wave tone records because we had those tapes that we recorded and when we recorded it was they had a remote truck that came and part of the contract that we wrote for this that, that was written and we had to sign to do this it was for a live radio broadcast but when they came backstage with the contract to sign I added a clause in it that says we own these masters and can put them out worldwide and everything. And so we got the masters, oh, and that's nice. sort of how I started my label. Ah, I didn't know that. That answers another question. What gave you the idea to start your label, Wavetones? So yep, and so that was, uh, we had a week's worth of records, so I put out three volumes of that. Wow. And then started to... Uh, Here's your aunt, see, sputtering. Oh, uh, that's the tube. Uh, it could be a two, I'm not sure. But So then we put that out, and then I re-released some of my records that I had licensed to other companies. I did a record on Wyndham Hill called uh, Mosaic. It was my first solo record. That was one of them that I brought out because the uh, it was a five-year lease, so I got the rights back, which I'm glad I did it. I learned from, I got some good advice along the way about working with record companies mm-hmm. and so then it, it snowballed, and one thing led to another. I have worldwide distribution for my label uh, in Europe and in uh, Japan and in the States. Wavetone. Wavetone, yeah. yep. Now we have 25 releases out. And, but Elements is, is Danny and my playground, basically, for yeah. writing, because I, you know, I really like to compose for that band. If you had to pick a couple of your favorite tracks from 15 records, Whoa. I mean, just give me like a two or three that you just come to mind right off? Um, well, of the uh, Elements records, I love the first Elements record. Um, there's a tune called Electric Fields that I really like. There's another one called Color Wheel. It was uh, very spacious. You know, another thing, just to sidestep again, a lot of people don't know that you played on that Joan Osborne, the record called Relish, which in mid-90s had the big hit, What If God Was One of Us. Yes. You were on that whole record. I remember ha- looking at the record going, wow, Mark Egan's on this record. You know? Yeah. And you said it was recorded... Like, it was in Katona. Yep. We, the producer, Rick Chertoff, uh, wanted to get it out of the city, and we he rented a house on a reservoir there which we passed by all the time. Reservoir, sure. When I was living Route 35. There, I walked there all the time. And we spent uh, five days a week for a month. We would just be there five days and I'd be home on weekends. So it was perfect. It was great. And we just did all the tracks there. And I had worked with him before on the Sophie B. Hawkins record. Mm-hmm. With the, um, That's another track that I really like. It's uh, Damn, I Wish I Was Your Lover. Oh, yeah. And that I was, didn't know you played on that. Yeah. And wow. That's and it's very cool. 
it's so funny because we went to uh, New Orleans to play at a record convention that uh, that was on Sony, I think. So they flew us down there to play with that band. And it's so funny because the head of Sony came to the rehearsal studio, you know, and while we were doing it, we were playing that song. And he came up to me, he goes, now I want you to play it, you know, like the guy that played it on the record, you know? And I said, <laughs> no, it, yeah. I wrote it. No, I, you know, I played on it. It was, it was funny. It was, anyway, but yeah, that was, so I worked with Rick Chertoff, the producer on that. That's when I first met him. Uh, and then he was doing this Joan Osborne, Osborne project. But it was, yeah. a, it was Rick Chertoff and Eric Bazilian, who's a guitar player who plays with a group called the Hooters, yeah. and Rob Hyman. They're like a team. They worked on Cyndi Lauper's first record. And then um, they called me in for that record with Sophie B. Hawkins and then the Joan Osborne. kind of funny because you were talking about we were talking about Maria Moldauer and it's like the guitar player wrote the biggest hit on her record and the, the Midnight at the Oasis the right. Maria Moldauer and then Joan Osborne if I remember correctly she didn't write that song no it was, it was written by Eric Brazilian who's the guitar player yes see it takes a guitar player man it takes Craft. a guitar <laughs> no I'm just joking it's just an interesting thing yes but so how was... did the Duran Duran connection came because you've done uh, you have a good relationship with those guys right you've played bass on a, on a few not just one record a couple of records right? uh, I, no just the one record just the one? Uh, which was called Arcadia So Red the Rose is yeah. the name of the record if I spin back a little bit in my Miami days we used to also go to Criteria Studios and record at night because the engineer who was a he was an assistant engineer his name is Alex Sadkin was at Criteria and he would let us come in and do these late night recordings for free because he just wanted to record and do things and yeah. so we were going with our band with Phyllis Hyman without Phyllis just the rhythm section with Hiram Clifford myself and Bill Bowker and we would do these all night recording sessions so I, Alex Sadkin I stayed in touch with him he later became a major engineer and producer. He did, um, oh, I think he recorded Bob Marley. He did Simply Red. Mm -hmm. He recorded all the Duran Duran records. So we were, I was doing some studio work in New York at Right Track Studios, which I don't know if it's there anymore, but probably not. I was in one studio recording, I think it was an Elements record, and Alex was in the other room recording Foreigner. Um, that amazing hit um, I want to know what love is oh yeah yeah tell me to know yeah. and so he was doing that we met out in the hallway and I said Alex how's it going good you know great to see you and um, funny thing is he played baritone sax with Jocko in Miami because he's from world. Fort Lauderdale and so wow. he was in the horn section with Las Olas Brass so he knew Jocko you know so he knew that I was playing a lot. I was doing a lot of session work in New York. And he said, would you be interested? I might have a project that I might think to get you on. It's with the guys from Duran Duran. I said, great, I'd, I'd love to. Mm -hmm. So that was a connection. That was a connection. And so he cooked me up with them. And then uh, maybe a month or two later, I was in Paris for six weeks recording with them. I don't even think my name is on the record anymore, but it is me. Yeah. Your name was on the check. I'm sure it was a nice the, check. The name was on the check. <laughs> on the many checks, yes. And, um, and but there it, you go. Folks. It was very creative uh, record. Oh, and time cool. per week experimented. Yeah. I love Duran Crazy. Yeah. With that record because they wanted to, David Gilmour played guitar on it. Mm. Sting was on some of it singing. Manu Cachet was, played percussion on it. Steve Jordan, who I recommended to Alex for drummers, Steve Jordan mm -hmm. played on it, as well as Roger Taylor, the drummer that plays mm -hmm. with Duran Duran, mm -hmm. and Roger ended up playing on a lot of it. And uh, we just experimented 
every day for those are dream sessions that probably yes. don't exist anymore was that the same connection for sting because you you know i forgot about sting he played on the little wing version nothing hiram, like the sun yeah and hiram played the solo hiram bullock and- yes um that was a little different because when i used to play with the gil evans orchestra which was also another iconic band for me to play in and we used to play at sweet basil which is a club in new york city on bleecker street at seventh avenue and we was a lot of people would come in to hear us and sting used to come in mm. and he used to sit in and sing so that's how we he met and then they wanted to do a project together with gil evans orchestra so that's how that came about and we recorded not only little wing but we recorded up from the skies mm. which is a b single you know and it was released in japan only and it's a great track Every song, there's many soloists, so you got to have dynamics and let them build and really support the soloists. So it's a great lesson in, you know, changing it up and playing with different soloists and coming up with background parts because Gil gave us the freedom to do whatever we wanted mm-hmm. anytime. And that was the prerequisite that he set up. Sometimes when you have that much freedom, it can fall on its face and be complete chaos, but I think you get real brilliance out of that because you're, you're left to really, you know, on your own Sick device. You have, yeah. you, it gives you confidence to really do what you want to do, you know? Yeah, I'm getting inspired just talking about this stuff now. <laughs> yeah, me too. Um, <laughs> but yeah, as far as your solo projects, I know I, I was listening to one uh, Beyond Words on the way up here, mm-hmm. and the one you gave me, you gave me a lot of music that day. That's beautiful, man. And oh, there's thanks. there's a lot of Clifford Carter's on it. Clifford Danny's uh, on some. Yeah, and um, who's the the percussionist? The kind Don of crazy Elias. guy from uh, you know the other guy like was in Weather. Manolo Bergenis. Yes. Yeah. And there's a track on there with Don Elias that I really love on Beyond Words. I play harmonics and bass. Here, I have it. Oh, it's called Southeast Passage. Oh, okay. And the Southeast Passage refers to Miami is where I, my passage into music, that's what the oh, title came It's a very esoteric title, but yeah. Southeast Passage, and that was just bass and percussion, and I overdubbed a little synthesizer things and played a melody over it, but I used a, an even-tied harmonizer with a backwards setting, so it, whatever I played, it came out backwards. Yeah. Oh, you know, you were telling me, too, that you studied with, uh, you went and took a lesson with Joe DiOrio. Yes. Just to get some new things to work on. And yes. Was, yeah, for those of you that, that don't know, Jody Orio is a sort of uh, Yoda kind of uh, guitar teacher who, I think he wasn't even Matheny's teacher and maybe yes. a couple other people. University yep. of Miami connection. Yeah. Exactly, yeah. He wasn't actually at the university, but he was around there. When I was at GIT, he sort of shut the door. He would never let us see. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> we, we were so scared anyway. I'm not sure I would have knocked on the door. You know, Pretty intimidating. Yeah, cat. Joe was just one of those guys who was always inspired and always real serious musician yeah he didn't mess around he was always going for it i admire that so much you know he didn't do a lot of commercial gigs or he just always played creative music his whole life you know so i did i got together with him last year just took one lesson it was really we just spent five hours i thought it was going to be an hour we spent five hours in a dinner and he just laid so much on me i just couldn't it's so much to digest but i i wanted to get more you know for to talk music like when you're playing over a dominant seventh chord i wanted to get some different ideas and he approached it like bar talk or it's expanded it's so mind expanding you know mm. I, I realized and i wrote out a lot of the ideas and it's really uh it opened up a lot of things for me a 12 tone row kind of things or something on over it yeah 12 tone and a lot of um things that go outside and inside the tonal center and ways of weaving in and out of that and, and making it melodic in a way and just wow. thinking of it differently so it was good because you know as playing a bass as bass players a lot even though i play melodic and solos and stuff you get we're always playing the groove and you're stuck in not stuck but i'm focused on playing the ground the foundation yeah and i'm you know like guitar players you guys you're focused on you want to play around it all you know yeah. even though you're playing the groove and right. you know but it's with the bass player it's 
it's hard to get outside of playing the foundation sometime if you do that a lot. So it's always good to get another perspective. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. So yeah, Mark, thank you so much again for doing this and uh, sharing all of your experience and knowledge and all the cool stories and taking time to do it. Thank you, Shane. It's an honor and pleasure to do it. It's great. Hopefully you had fun. I had a blast. Thanks. (laughs) All right. All right, well, there you have it, folks. Mark Egan, a lot of fun to do that one. I hope you really enjoyed that one. Stay tuned next time for more episodes coming up. As always, love hearing from you. Thanks for listening to The Riff Raff.